Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16 is where we're going to be this morning. I will confess to you that I am uh, plagued often by frequent distractions. Uh, I am someone who is easily distracted. Uh, You've probably seen that dog in the cartoon up that says, Squirrel! Uh, It's just readily, easily distracted and uh, I think it's probably pretty common to most of us as we deal with the age of the internet and we have computers and, and phones and things that are always vibrating on our wrists and in our pockets and on our desktops. We get emails and text messages and TVs and all kinds of other things that continue to draw our attention away and I know I'm not the only one because as you've seen over time here, even recently, all of the cell phone companies and all of the People that are producing software have come out with focus modes. Things that you can program on your phone that you can turn them on and they get rid of all the apps and they silence all the distractions. They only let certain bits of communication in. I know that I'm not the only one. We all must be struggling with a very similar problem of focusing, of continuing, of enduring in our work. Now, all of those things are helpful. It's helpful for me to click on a focus mode and to remove the distraction, but nothing is quite as effective as my wife walking up behind me and saying, is that what you're supposed to be doing? <laughs> that to me, that exhortation from my wife is, is, just, is just an ever-present reminder. I need to put my head down and go to work. I need to press on. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, is now at a place where he is encouraging the Philippians based on what he's already told them in his own life to press on in the work that God has for them. And as he reminds the Philippians, we take it also as a reminder to us to continue to press on in the work that God has for us. Let's look at what he says to us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray over the word that we've read. Heavenly Father, we see your word in front of us, its encouragements, its challenges, its places that are going to convict us. We pray that your word would have its work that your Spirit would minister to us in the teaching of your Word, that you would point us in the way of righteousness. Give us the gift of repentance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is really a continuation of what Paul has been saying to the Philippians even as far back, even as recent as last week. And so if we're going to understand what Paul's saying here in this passage, it's helpful to, to go back and remember what he just said to the Philippians that we covered last week. He's giving the Philippians this exhortation and a warning. It's, it's both 
and. It's an exhortation and a warning. And he says at the beginning of chapter 3, remember, finally, my brothers, this is chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So the first thing is an exhortation to them to rejoice in the Lord. And the reason we said last week that he's calling them to rejoice in the Lord is precisely because their righteousness is to be founded on Christ's righteousness for them rather than their own works. And so for that reason and that reason alone, they should have ample cause to rejoice in the Lord. But then there's also a warning on the back end of that where he's warning them about teachers that are coming in and trying to convince them that their righteousness is on the grounds of all of their own obedience to the law. So there's these teachers coming in and saying, you have to be a good Jew, you have to follow the works of the law, you have to live righteously first, and then and only then can you actually have the righteousness of God. And Paul is basically dispelling them of that notion and telling them, rejoice that Christ's righteousness has been provided for you, and it's not, as they say, righteousness on your own accord. And so he's telling them, he gives them this little exercise where he's basically telling them that no one knows better than me that this is the case. And he tells them in verse 5, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he says, there's no one who had it more together than me. No one is from a better family than me. No one knew the law more than me, a Pharisee. No one was more zealous for the Lord than I was. I persecuted the church. The righteousness that they preach for you to have, I had it. I was under the law blameless. But, look at what he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, these things that I had, that they're preaching, that were to my gain, this self-righteousness, as we would call it, it was for me loss. The more I hit the gas pedal of my own self-righteousness, the more it buried me deeper in the mud. All of these things caused me to trust in my own abilities, the abilities of my own flesh, to perform the way I thought God might want me to perform. All of which could never possibly gain me a righteous standing before God on Judgment Day. There's no way with all of the things that I had done that I could possibly ever stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and claim a righteousness of my own. But Paul gets down to the real hope of the Christian whose righteousness is not self-righteousness. In verse 8, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. That's it, right there. That is the goal of Paul's life is to gain Christ and be found in Him. Keep that in mind, 
because it comes into play in our passage this morning. It's where Paul picks up in our passage in just a minute. He continues, though, by saying that being found in Him is not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like us, like Him in His death. But then you notice He leaves us in verse 11 with this cliffhanger. Look at what He says in verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's a cliffhanger because it, it sounds uncertain. Doesn't it? It sounds that I may attain Now, as I said last week, this is a far cry from the Paul we saw in his former life who says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now he says here in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may, I might, that it might be possible that I attain the resurrection from the dead. So it leaves us with this question. It should leave us with this question. Wait, Paul, are you saying... That you could possibly miss the resurrection? Are are you saying that it's possible that you, Apostle Paul, could possibly miss eternal life? Fall short of eternal life in Christ? And it's here where we pick up with our passage and Paul's first point that he makes. That the Christian presses on. The Christian presses on. There's a struggle that's common to most in the Christian faith. Not all, but most. And, and I say most because I've seen in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 9 that some have the gift of faith. But th- So there are some in the church, and I've met some even in this church body, that have the kind of faith that remains unwavering who have have really never questioned their salvation, who have never struggled with the assurance of salvation. They've never struggled with whether or not God is real. They've never questioned the resurrection of Jesus. And, And sometimes they can't even understand why someone would question that. They have, I think, what would be called the gift of faith. I've met some of them in this church body, but if my limited experience in ministry is anything, these individuals are comparatively rare. The vast majority of us have this struggle that's common to most of us, which is the struggle of the assurance of salvation. The struggle of the assurance that God is real, that what we're reading and studying and preaching about and talking about and and exhorting one another over is true, that it happened, that what we believe is not a lie, that it's, it's true. That struggle is common to most of us. And, and then we get to this passage where the very thought that Paul says, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, I could possibly fall short, gives many of us heart palpitations. If we think too much about it, and we zoom in on it, we think, well, if there's a chance that the Apostle Paul might miss the kingdom of God, what am I? 
I'm a goner. There's not a chance that I'm going to make it. So is that what Paul's saying? That he could possibly miss the resurrection? And the answer to that is yes. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. You don't have to turn there. You can listen, write it down, maybe look at it later. Or it might be up on the screen here behind me. Or the wall, or whatever this is. Um, we're getting it replaced, just be patient. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He recognizes there is a possible world that exists where he does not make it. He's admitting there's a possibility that after preaching to others, he would find himself disqualified from the race, that he wouldn't make it similar to the possibility that he's raising here in verse 11. But look at what he says in answer to that in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. And by this, he means the goal of gaining Christ, which he just said back in verse 8. Not that I've already obtained gaining Christ. I haven't already gained Him. It's not, it's not mine. I don't have the market cornered on resurrection from the dead. I don't have the market cornered on eternal life. I don't already possess this. I have not already gained Christ. Or, he says, or am already perfect. Paul is dispelling the notion, lest any of us be tempted to believe that Paul has reached perfection, that he has arrived. He's dispelling the notion that that's possible for him right now. He, I've not arrived. I haven't achieved some state of enlightenment where I no longer have to worry about the resurrection. I've got it. It's in my back pocket. That's not true, he says. No, he says, I'm not already there. There is still a very real chance that after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. But, he says, I press on to make it my own. I press on to make it. That is the goal of actually gaining Christ and being found in Him and sharing in the resurrection of the dead. We saw in 1 Corinthians where he's not beating his one aimlessly against the air, but he's training his body. He wants to keep it under submission. He doesn't want it to get out of control. He doesn't want to pursue the sinful desires of the flesh. He's doing everything impossible to keep aware that that is a real possibility. I don't have it already. I am still fighting every single day to work toward this. Now he's going to define what he means in just a second by making it his own, by pressing on. But for now he's just telling them that I'm still in the process with you, Philippians. I haven't already arrived. I'm there with you. We are all in this together. But what does he say empowers his doing what is it that he that he's actually empowers his process of gaining christ he says because christ jesus has made me his own 
That's how His work is actually making progress towards the resurrection. That's how it's actually growing Him in righteousness is first, Christ Jesus made me His own. The only reason that He's able to press in to gaining Christ, to knowing Him, to being found in Him, to having His righteousness, and to having hope that He will share in the resurrection from the dead is that Jesus Christ first possessed Paul. That's the only reason He even wants to do it. The Spirit of Christ now dwells within and it empowers His work to the end. This coincides actually with what Paul's already told us in Philippians. He told us in chapter 1, verse 6. You can look back there in 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Flash forward to 129. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you by God to believe and to suffer. Philippians 2.13, just another chapter. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. I think these are the same things that Paul's describing as Christ Jesus making me His own. He began the work in me, and He's bringing it to completion. He granted it to me to believe. He works in me, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. But Paul's saying here, it's, it's, it's not that, that Paul's work for God or his pressing on in gaining Christ is meaningless in any way. Oh, Christ has already done it. He's already there. He's already making all the, the inroads. He's already doing all the things. So my work is, is really meaningless. I'm just along for the ride. That's not what he says. It's just that he's saying it's only possible. It's only effective. Because God moved first to make me His own. It's then that my striving in righteousness is actually pleasing to the Lord. image that I used last week, that Paul's righteousness defined by his own good deeds, was like hitting the gas when you're stuck in mud. It just serves to bury you deeper. All the while, you become more convinced that compared to the guy sitting next to me, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, if you've seen what he's done. And all it does is serve to bury you deeper and convince you more that on Judgment Day, God's going to just throw the question out there, why should I let you in? And you're going to say to him, well, I've basically been a good person. I've tried to do good things. I mean, I'm not vile. I mean, you seen Hitler over here? He's, he's awful. Compared to him, I'm, I'm fantastic. That's why you should let me in. It only buries you deeper. But once Christ Jesus has made you his own, in other words, he has opened your eyes to what your righteousness actually affords you, he pulls you out of the mud pit and puts you on the street. And now, pressing on the gas, based on Christ's righteousness, is actually pleasing to the Lord. Obedience is actually pleasing to the Lord then. So how is it that he presses on? There's two parts here, but he says one thing. Notice he says that in verse 13, but one thing I do. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. And then he lists two things. 
just like Paul. This is his two sides of the same coin, essentially, he says here. And the first, he says, is forgetting what lies behind. Part one is forgetting what lies behind. And I think he's calling back to the list that he just made in verses 5 and 6, which culminates in his own self-righteousness. Look at all these things that I've done. In spite of the fact that he has personally overseen the murder of Christians out of a supposed zeal for God. He says, forgetting what lies behind. I've laid all that aside. Brothers and sisters, there is a real work that has to be done here in each of our lives. As we understand what it means to be saved and to be grounded on Christ's righteousness, there's a real work here that has to be done in the lives of Christians to forget what lies in the past. To let go of past sins that have been confessed to the Lord. Where the relationships, perhaps, that were fractured because of those sins have since been repaired to the best of your ability. There is a real work that has to be done on the part of Christians in trusting in Christ's righteousness to let go of the past. Now, it's simply not realistic that you would be ever able to totally forget past sins as if they never existed. I don't think that's even what Paul means here. But it's, it's simply not... There may be a time where you're able to completely forget about those past sins that the guilt of which weighs you down even now. But it's, it's just not realistic on the whole to ever expect that you're going to forget about those sins that you've committed in the past once confessed and repaired. Truth be told, you really don't want to forget past sin, at least like that. And there's a good reason. Because if you did, it wouldn't be long before you were arrogant, before you were prideful, before you were back on the grounds of your own self-righteousness. Right? Because you've forgotten about all the sins that weighed you down before. So now I'm pretty confident that I'm a pretty awesome person. Now our past actually humbles us. Because it reminds us of our need for Christ. But our sin has to be brought to the cross first. It has to be brought to the cross. The sense of the word that Paul uses here is to put it out of mind or disregard it. In other words, it doesn't carry weight anymore. He may remember the sin, but he forgets the guilt that goes with it. But there's a very important reason why. You see, believing in Jesus Christ is trusting that His death on the cross actually paid for your sin to such an extent that you stand before the perfect holiness of God as a son or daughter without condemnation. You get that? Trusting in Christ, believing in Christ, is trusting in His sacrifice. It's actually trusting that what He did on the cross allows you to be able to stand in front of a holy God, not condemned, but welcomed as a son or daughter. Fundamentally, that's what believing in Christ is. It's actually trusting that that was enough. That paid for all that sin. 
But if you think about it on the other side, if I'm to wallow in self-pity and guilt after my sin has been washed away, that's to believe that Christ's righteousness was not enough. That somehow it needs more. It wasn't enough to pay for all of my sins. It needs more. And I still need a righteousness of my own. All of the things that are required for you to enter into eternal life have all been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. Period. All of the righteousness that you could possibly ever muster is not to get you past the gates. You understand. It is living a life pleasing to the Lord, but it is not to get you into heaven. All of that has been provided by Christ. Listen, every single one of us stands here, or sits here, as it were, guilty. If you're looking around right now in the church and you're thinking all these people are way more holy than I am, that's false. Let me just dispel you of that notion. If you feel like everybody in here is just a hypocrite, no, they're not. And you might be self-conscious, all right? We can't dispel all that. But I can tell you that every single one of us stands here guilty before the Lord. There's nothing that you've done that other people in this room haven't also done. Forgetting what lies behind is a necessary component to grow in Christian maturity. But your sin has to be brought to the cross first. And what does that mean for your sin to be brought to the cross first? There's a point for many people where the love of God that He has for you in Christ becomes very, very real. Where it suddenly clicks. It makes total sense to you. It happened to me. I've seen it happen to very many people, some of whom are in this room. It's a moment where the lights come on, where you understand the weight of your sin, and you understand what Christ has done for you and the magnitude of forgiveness that you have in Christ. When salvation goes from something you know in your head to something that changes your life. When redemption goes from believing a set of facts that you were taught in Sunday school or maybe vacation Bible school to a deep affection for the one that saved you. Notice what Paul's describing here. He doesn't just want to gain eternal life. He wants to gain Christ. He has a deep affection for the one that saved him. Not just the facts of the matter that he is saved. Not just to gain eternal life. He actually has an affection for the one that saved him. For the person that saved him. And there's a point where the lights come on where you realize the weight of your sin and that's what you want. The one that saved you. Normally it's at a point when you've been brought to your absolute lowest. When sin has you dead to rights. And the guilt that you feel for it makes it seem like there's no rescue. 
And the only way I can describe it is when darkness is all around and you think there's nowhere to turn. Perhaps you've been driven into a deep and dark depression where the only escape seems suicidal. It's at this point when you hear the words of Paul in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Or the words of Isaiah, with his stripes you are healed. There's a moment when Satan comes to you with the law in his hands and he says, transgressor. But you hear the words of John through Jesus say, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn you, but that you might be saved through Him. It's at this moment in your life, in the life of an individual, where self-righteousness meets its bitter end. You realize it's brought you nowhere. It's brought you to the pit of despair and darkness when you have absolutely nothing to boast about. When all you see is your sin, and yet, somehow, in the midst of it all, you see the Father running to you in Christ and saying to you, or saying to everyone else, bring quickly the best robe and put it on Him, and put a ring on His hand and shoes on His feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's at this moment that you see the unfathomable beauty of the death of the Son of God on your behalf. That you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us made you alive with Christ. And it's then that you understand the phrase, by grace you have been saved. And I pray for so many of you that walk in your own self-righteousness. You don't even know it. You have enemies, sometimes even enemies inside the church body. You hold grudges sometimes even against people that you would call otherwise brothers and sisters. You simply cannot extend any grace and mercy to anyone. No one meets your standard of righteousness. You want all the grace for you. That's fine. Give me grace but can't extend grace to anyone else. You see your role in the church as critic or cynic. I pray for you that before you forget your sin, you'll first come to an absolute breaking point where your own self-righteousness will meet its end. There at the foot of the cross, you will see no escape because of the vile stench of death that you carry with you. 
And when your sin has almost overwhelmed you, I pray that Jesus meets you there on your Damascus road. And you hear the words that you've heard so many times over and over and over again. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I pray that then and only then you might forget what lies behind so that you can press on to what lies ahead. This is for Paul precisely what happened to him in his life. On the road to Damascus, he there meets the resurrected Christ. He finds an immeasurable gift in the righteousness of God granted to him, though he did not earn it, though he could not earn it, granted to him by God's grace through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. And there, on the road to Damascus, his murderous zeal died. His self-righteousness died. His I-can-do-it-myself died by looking at the resurrected Christ. And it's only when your sin has truly been brought to the cross that those burdens of the past can actually be lifted and the guilt can be forgotten. But I'd also pray for all of us that we would never forget that moment when the lights came on, lest we live in the darkness. The second, he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He presses on toward the goal of gaining Christ for the prize of the upward call. In a few verses, he's going to say, because you look at this verse, you say, what, what in the world is he talking about, this upward call? But look at what he says in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When Paul says the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, I think what he's talking about there is that calling of God that reminds us this world is not our home. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. Spoiling a little bit of next week's sermon, that's okay. It'll be shorter. No, it won't. <laughs> we'll one day be made perfect. Our bodies will be resurrected from the dead. They'll be transformed by his power. But look at how he contrasts that in verse 19 with those that set their minds on earthly things. So pressing on here is the process whereby a Christian grows in maturity by being less intrigued by all the things that are involved in our lives on earth and more intrigued with what Christ tells us is truly important and truly matters. Heavenly things. Realizing that our citizenship is in, from heaven and from it we await a Savior. That's our upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, the answer to the question that we posed at the beginning is yes, there is a possibility that Paul raises that he might not participate in the resurrection, being disqualified. He might, after having preached to others, that, that, that possibility is real. It's possible in the event that he departs from, on the one side, following Christ and trusting in Christ's righteousness 
and tries to trust in his own righteousness. Or if he rejects the righteousness from God that is by faith, then yes, he will have departed from Christ altogether. But you understand, he won't have lost his salvation. It's not his yet. That's what he's saying. Salvation is not mine yet. I believe wholeheartedly that I am saved, but I have not possessed the real salvation that is to come, which is eternal life with Christ. I haven't made it there yet. He can't lose something he never had. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That brings Paul to his last point. Perseverance is the crowning fruit of the Christian. It's about perseverance. Look at what he says in 15. Let those of us who are mature think like this, think it this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Maturity, he says, comes from this same root that we brought up back in chapter 1, where Paul says that God, what God began in you, he would bring to completion. That word, bring to completion, comes from the same root as the word here, maturity. It's just the verb form of the noun or adjective here, maturity. What God has begun in you, and what He is bringing to completion, is a kind of maturity that leads you to depend on Christ's righteousness all the way through to the end. That endures, that never fails. There's a couple of things that you need to see here. First is a warning. The second is encouragement. First, the warning. The Christian life is one of perseverance. It's not one of momentary or even decades-long decisions. It's not a series of decisions. It's one of perseverance, maintaining all the way through to the end. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, true faith, the true faith of a Christian is a persevering faith. It lasts to the end. It doesn't peter out at the end. It is lasting. In other words, you could go to church for your entire life. You could know all the answers that you were taught in VBS and that you were taught in Sunday school and that you were even taught by your parents. But you could come to the final years, years of your life and fall into unrepentant sin and self-righteousness after preaching to others, you yourself find yourself disqualified. And the warning is, know that that's a possibility. You haven't made it yet. You're here, you've been baptized, maybe. You haven't made it yet. But second is an encouragement. Right there in the middle of 15. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Perhaps you're in a moment or even a season of backsliding and wandering. Maybe it's because of sin 
Or maybe it's because of a host of other things. Maybe your relationship with your spouse is rocky. Your relationship with your parents. Your relationship with your children. Your relationship with your work. A whole host of reasons that you might be in a backsliding or wandering state. Paul gives us these bits of encouragement throughout, but he says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now he says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. You might think you have been sustained thus far by your hard work in pressing on, in knowing Christ, but what he tells us time and again what His Word tells us over and over, and what Paul reassures us now is that God has been feeding you along the way. God has been bringing you to maturity. God has been growing you, and God will always care for His children. If, in fact, He began the good work in you, He is the one that will bring it to completion. The good news in that is that we are all a work in progress. The bad news in that is that we are all a work in progress. We're all in the midst of a growing season and will be until Christ returns. But He promises us that He will sustain His children by revealing to them where they have been otherwise satisfied by earthly things and not fully realize that their citizenship is in heaven. So what does this actually mean to us? It's what Paul is telling the Philippians and I think it's what he would tell us. Press on. If you find yourself at the foot of the cross, forgiven of all of your sin, maybe from time to time wallowing in self-pity, wallowing in self-righteousness, but otherwise forgiven of your sin, then press on. Graduates, you're headed out into a, a world that can sometimes be dark and discouraging? There will be a question in your mind soon. What am I working for? And there will be a temptation. Mark it down. I know you can't fathom this right now because you're poor. (laughs) There will be a point in the future, especially when you got more degrees than a thermometer, What am I working for? And the temptation is to answer that with a whole bunch of earthly things. Because you will never run out of things that you want. Pressing on is finding someone, a group of someones, in a faithful church to preach the word to you. And to remind you that there's no hope there. To remind you to set your affections on Christ. To look to Him. There's going to be dark days that you wish would end. And again, that same voice calling out with a clarion call. Set your hope and affection on Christ. Elderly, not just those who are currently elderly, but all those who hope one day to be elderly. 
which I hope would be all of us, let us as a Christian community never be, never be identified the way the world identifies the elderly. Set in their ways. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. We have tons of these examples that the culture tells us is true of the elderly. But in the Christian world, and according to the scriptures, it's actually the opposite. It's the young who are rebellious. It's the young who can't be taught. It's the young who are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. But as they encounter Christ and as they grow in Christ, they also grow in grace and mercy. So the reality for the Christian community is that we, as a people, should be ever-growing. And as we grow older, we should also grow softer. As we grow older, not softer in doctrine, softer in kindness and mercy and grace. Are you weary and heavy laden? The exhortation to you is the same. Press on. Are there encouragers in the congregation? The critics are loud. The critics will always be loud in every church. Encouragers need to drown them out. Find ones in this congregation that are hurting, that need encouragement. Come alongside them, put your arm around them and say... Press on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you encourage us with your word to press on? I pray for every single person in here. Those who potentially have been resistant to their own sin, would you wake them up? Open their eyes. Bring them to the point of breaking. And reassure them of your love for them in Christ on the cross. May it be at that moment in their darkest hour where they will see Christ truly as a Savior and they will long to gain Him. To live eternally under the reign of the one that saved them. Father, give us conviction. Knowing what we believe and yet also to what we are called. Lives of holiness, yes. Lives of mercy and grace, yes. Would you make us that in Christ? We pray in his name. Amen.